If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through uh, Peter's letter to these churches. We've been moving throughout what we call an epistle. That's a fancy word for letter in the Bible. I'm going to ask you, if you don't have a Bible with you, to reach underneath the seat in front of you, pull out one of those Bibles, and keep it open the whole time. The sermon will be much more beneficial and pleasurable if you do so. We're going to begin reading in just a few moments in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're actually going to read through a longer section, just like we did in previous weeks. We're going to connect this section together. So as we're reading, if you're the type of person who likes to underline in your Bible or circle in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline or circle the references to suffering in the text today. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, ye will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good steward of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We have prayed many times reminding ourselves that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We pray that you would help us right now as we turn our attention to your word because we confess that sometimes some of the words that we read in the scripture are difficult to understand. They don't seem to be illuminated clearly. We ask that you would help us now to focus our minds on your word, that we might think hard thoughts and carefully so that we might understand and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps for those who are here today who have never yet seen the beauty of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them when you do the good work of redeeming grace, when you remove the heart of stone and you insert the heart of flesh, and you cause them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ, in whose great name we pray. Amen. Is suffering compatible with a faithful Christian life? In his new book, Health, Wealth, and the Real Gospel, Sean DeMars recounts the time when he heard a pastor saying that how long we remain in suffering is entirely up to us. The choice is ours. Trial or triumph. But as anyone who suffered in here knows, it's not really that simple, is it? Can we really just disentangle ourselves from the suffering that ensnares us at any given moment? Peter does not seem to think so throughout the entirety of his letter. In fact, Peter seems to think that ordinary Christians like you and like me ought to expect to suffer in this life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. For Peter, Christian triumph wasn't a matter of escaping trials. It was a matter of learning how to rejoice in God as those trials are endured because suffering is a tool that God uses to grow, teach, and shape us. Friends, suffering in our life isn't a sign that something has gone wrong. It's more likely a sign that we're walking the same road that Jesus walked. And here at the beginning of Holy Week, we are reminded of that. As Jesus walked toward Jerusalem, he was walking toward suffering. To elucidate this claim, Peter applies suffering in three ways in our text today. Suffering in the blessing of God. Suffering in the mission of God. Suffering in the will of God. Notice first, suffering in the blessing of God. Look again at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter concluded verse 12 by promising that the Lord's favor is on the righteous, but he will punish evildoers. Look there again with me, verse 12 of chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And now in verse 13, Peter actually draws an inference from verse 12, which actually is easier to see if we translated the passage, therefore, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question used by Peter to stimulate the thinking of his readers. Who will harm you? Who will harm any Christian if they are pursuing good? And the answer for Peter is no one. No one, according to Peter, can ultimately 
harm Christians who are zealous for doing good. In fact, Peter tells us over and over again throughout the letter that God will reward them for their faithfulness, for their, verse 13, zeal, their ardent labor, their fervent pursuit, their earnest desire in the face of persecution and despite the opposition that they face in this life. Peter was not promising these Christians that they would escape rejection and harm and pain in this life. He expected them to suffer, at least verbally, for doing what is right. Just listen to some of these verses in this same letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Throughout the entirety of this letter, Peter is reminding these elect exiles that suffering actually stalks the Christian throughout the entirety of their life in this present age. That suffering is dogging them in this life, but the pain is only temporary. So like Paul, he asks in verse 13, who is there to harm you? If you know what is before you, who is there to harm you now? Just like Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? After speaking of the Spirit of Christ indwelling the believer... And the suffering that the believer experienced, Paul asks, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter assured these Christians scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia that nothing can harm them if they continue to walk God's path, a path that is filled with suffering for the believer. 
that the pain inflicted on them in this life is only temporary and that they will be vindicated on the last day, which is why he says, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. In verse 14, Peter offers a clarification because the sufferings Christians experience often make them believe that the teaching of verse 13 is false since Christians can be harmed and even killed by their opponents. And that often makes us feel as if we have been separated from God or, if we're honest, at least separated from God. But Peter did not believe that the sufferings of Christians contradicted what he says in verse 13, quite the opposite. So he says, those who suffer for righteousness' sake, those who endure opposition because they are, verse 13, zealous for what is good, those who suffer harm because they are a Christian are, verse 14, blessed. The promised heavenly inheritance of the believer guarantees that the distresses of this life, of their life, of your life, of my life, do not have the last word. They are, Peter says, blessed. Now, that's difficult for us to understand. In what sense are they blessed? When the sorrow is real. Or the words of another person cut deep. Or the chronic pain that we experience because of an autoimmune disease won't go away. Or the depression sets in and we can't even get out of bed in the morning. Or the anxiety spikes and we no longer know what to do. We can't handle ourselves. Surely Peter wasn't so unfeeling as an apostle that he meant you're blessed when you have sorrow. Or hear harmful words that you should never have to hear. Or experience a never-ending pain that won't go away and there's nothing any doctor can do about it. Or when you're overwhelmed by depression. Or you're paralyzed by your own anxiety. No, but that's often how we read the text. As if the apostle is just some cyborg unaffected by the trials of this life. Friend, if you've read the text in that way, let me help you today. Like Jesus, Peter is saying that those who suffer for righteousness sake, those who suffer because of their walk with Christ, those who suffer as a Christian, those who suffer while believers are blessed because of the future reward, not their current circumstances, because of the future grace that is before them, because of the hope of what they will receive. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and if we read the rest of the gospel, so they persecuted Jesus. Brothers and sisters, present suffering is not a sign of God's punishment. Your present suffering is not punitive because you did something wrong God is getting back at you because of what you've done wrong in your life. Your present suffering is preparation for God's blessing on the day when he rewards all who have trusted in his Christ with the eternal life that we receive as inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. That is when the suffering is for, verse 14, 
righteousness sake, not for sin or being a jerk. What Peter means is when we not only do not sin, but when we do what is right in contrast to sin, when we stand for Jesus and his gospel, and then we suffer as a result of it. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel's crime against Cain was his integrity, which made Cain look bad and Cain Cain couldn't stand it. Abel was persecuted for righteousness sake. His death is among the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Let me ask you, are you being or have you been persecuted for integrity or inflammatory speech? For godly contentment or an ungodly discontentment? For gentleness or for impatience? For telling the truth or for being a liar? For righteousness sake or for unrighteousness in your life? You see, one of the ways that we misunderstand this is that we think, that all the time we receive opposition is simply a result of the fact that we're a Christian. And many times that is true. But many times we suffer as a result of our own sin in our own lives. Peter is not speaking of that here. Peter teaches us what Paul taught Timothy, that this world dishes out righteous suffering to us all. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It happens even in the church, and if we're honest... It is actually most difficult when it happens and occurs from the very people that we least expect it to come from, people in the church. The Lord's Supper confronts us with this reality each and every time we gather around the table. The fact that people who profess the same gospel and find their names on the same role of a local church are actually in opposition to one another. It confronts us with the reality of the gospel And the fact that we have to reconcile as we come together and rally under the banner of that same gospel. Peter wants us to learn that suffering is part and parcel of the believer's life in this world. That there is no way to follow a crucified Savior without living a crucified life. It's not rare, but it's not perpetual either. And it doesn't have the last word in our lives. Brothers and sisters, if you are suffering... Whatever is going on in your life, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But Peter would also prepare us, not simply to endure suffering, but to find in suffering an opportunity for Christian witness. Suffering in the blessing of God. Notice second, suffering in the mission of God. Look at verse 14, the back half. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's referring to the people who caused the suffering in your life. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Since Christians are blessed by God when they suffer, they should not, verse 14, fear or be troubled by what their oppressors can do to them. 
That is easier said or written than done, especially when we consider that our opponents are very capable of striking dread in our hearts. How many of us feel that we can't even be in the same room with someone who has hurt us? It's almost impossible for us to be around them at all, much less block out all fear and never be troubled by them in our thoughts. So once again, we're forced to ask ourselves, is Peter obtuse? Is he so unfeeling that he would not care about the sorrows of God's people? Is he perhaps like one of those people who has ideas for sufferers when they've never suffered very much themselves? Brothers and sisters in this room who perhaps do not consider yourself a person here who has suffered very much, one of the most helpful things you can do is listen. One of the least helpful things you can do is talk at people in their suffering. Peter is not like that. He suffered pain, the pain of watching a friend be murdered. He'd suffered the pain of imprisonment in his own life as he anticipated what he thought to be his own execution before he later would die his own death. And now he reinforces the fact that no one can ultimately harm Christians who suffer for righteousness sake by once again alluding to Isaiah 8 in this epistle. If you have your Bible, I want everybody to flip with me to Isaiah 8. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. And Isaiah's prophecy is one that Peter obviously reflected on quite a bit when writing this letter. Because this is not the first time that he has cited it when writing to these people. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, the prophet writes, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Peter quotes this passage to share the secret of the boldness that he is putting for these people. In the days of Isaiah's prophecy, the southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the northern kingdoms of Israel and Aram. And that filled Ahaz, the king of Judah, and all of his people with terror. But Isaiah came along and he prophesied that the Lord would not only preserve Judah and that Israel and Aram would be defeated by Syria, but that the Lord would actually provide a sign to demonstrate the faithfulness of his word. All Ahaz and Judah had to do in that moment was respond by trusting in the Lord's promise. They had to trust in the face of the opposition that was before them. And in Isaiah 8, 11 through 15, the Lord commands his people, don't fear a plot that's been hatched against you, against you. That they should fear the God of Israel and they should put their trust in him because those who trust in him will find sanctuary, relief, hope. Peace, security, and all those who go against him will stumble and fall and be broken. Fear of God and trust in him rather than fear of our enemies and what they can do to us is what Peter is commending to the people. Believers are not 
to fear the suffering of unbelievers and that they might, uh, the suffering that they might administer to them. They are to trust the Lord, believing that God will vindicate his own people. Just as Judah did in the days of Ahaz, just as Judah trusted when tempted to fear their foes, but that's not all they're supposed to do. They are supposed to trust. We are supposed to trust God, trust his promises, believe in him, hope in his word, believe that he will save us, believe that he will vindicate us, and not act as if those things will not come to pass in the day of suffering and adversity. But they are to simultaneously, verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Because these elect exiles, unlike the Jews of Isaiah's day, were being persecuted for their allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And honoring him instead of fearing those who were harming them was actually how they would demonstrate his lordship in their lives as they esteemed or honored his name, verse 15, in their hearts. Not their inner private lives, but as we've already seen throughout this letter, in their behavior, because the heart is the origin of their behavior. Look in verse 22 of chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 3, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That their inner life gives way to the way that they are living externally. Friends, to honor Christ the Lord is holy in our hearts is not merely a private reality for us to personally steward but it will be evident to all by our behavior, especially when we suffer for the faith and our faith in Jesus Christ. It helps us see that for Peter, the inner life of the Christian and the outer behavior of the Christian are inseparable. We are so focused on our personal devotional life that we so often disconnect it from the way that we live every day. And we no longer see the connection by our behavior in our lives and to what we think privately in our lives. Peter will have none of it. He wants to connect these two things for us and to see that the inner man gives way to our outer behavior for all the world to see, especially in our suffering, particularly when we suffer. And that is why Peter ties honoring Christ the Lord as holy to our verse 15, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. In the midst of suffering. The inner man gives way to good behavior and an evangelical witness for all the world to see. The believer is prepared in the suffering to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of who they are privately, when they publicly suffer, they are prepared to give a reason for their faith. Peter envisions a situation when Christians are spontaneously asked about their faith. And they need to be prepared to respond in a wide variety of contexts to a wide variety of people in verse 15 regarding the hope that is in them. He assumes in those moments that Christians will have good grounds for believing the gospel and that the truth of the gospel is a public truth that can be defended publicly in a public way. But he does not assume that every Christian will know everything or should be an apologist or even try to be one. Instead, he assumes that they will have a good grasp of the essentials of the faith and have the ability to explain that faith to other people about why they believe that it is true. Friends, if you're a member of the church and you've joined our church, one of the things that perhaps you've asked yourself is, 
why is there all this paperwork that I need to do when I'm simply just trying to join a church? But one of the reasons that we ask you to fill out a doctrinal questionnaire and write what you believe about some things in your own words and write out your testimony, how God saved you, and share with us the gospel when you sit through a membership interview with an elder is because we are trying to know that not only you understand and believe the gospel, but that you are capable of sharing that gospel with other people. Some of us write the gospel very well, but do not articulate it very well, and we can grow there. Some of us are very good at articulating the gospel and are very lousy at writing the gospel. So we challenge ourselves as we prepare for church membership to understand some of these things so that we might be ready to not only affirm one another's faith, but so that we might also share the gospel with other people. And this is also why we have things like Sunday Night Theology, to be able to disciple you in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's part of the reason that Isaac works so hard on academy classes that we have before our Sunday morning service, not simply so that we can kill more time, but so that we might be able to equip you in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, so that you might be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that comes in a lot of different ways and hits you in all type of different scenarios, so we diversify what it is that we're trying to train you with. So if you're here today and you think right now, and I'm really struggling to share my faith, and I don't know how to grow as an evangelist. Here's just a few things that you can do if you're a member of our church or if you're not a member of our church. One, you can go to a membership class, even if you're already a member. It is helpful, and we have encouraged people to do this in the past, to just go and remind ourselves of what we agreed to believe when we became members of the church. There's nothing wrong through sitting through a remedial membership class. It's great, and it's good for your soul. Second, prioritize Sunday night theology. Being here on the last Sunday night of the month, it's not required of you, but we encourage you to be here. We bring these people here so that they might help equip you and you have the opportunity to ask them questions related to the issues that they're teaching us on. Third, you could take advantage of our academy classes. If you don't know what those are or when those are or how to get to those classes or where they are in our building, Isaac's down front. He's the one presiding today. If you don't know his name, you can come ask him. He'd love to answer questions for you. You can come in the middle of the week to verse by verse. Again, not required of you, but something that we do where we learn how to read the Bible together. One of the things that we do at verse by verse is we are asking questions so that we can all learn how to ask better questions of the Bible so that we can become better Bible readers and draw our own conclusions. We do all of these things. So that we can give a defense, not of the information that we have learned. Here's one of the great misunderstandings of the ways that people think about this passage. I need to be a great apologist. And if I just know all of the right facts, then all of the people that I now care about will become Christians. That's not what Peter says. Peter says, you need to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. The faith that's in you, not of the information that you've learned but of the, verse 15, hope that is in us as we manifest for all the world to see in our present difficult circumstances that our trust is in God, not in our earthly circumstances. That is one of the reasons that Peter speaks of hope and not of faith in his letter. Because hope keeps us looking forward. He does not want us to lose sight of what is before us, but he knows that suffering causes us to lose sight of what is before us. So instead of speaking of our earthly circumstances, Peter reminds us of the hope that is in us, hope of a new life, 
Hope of eternal life. Hope of a new world. Hope of a world where God rules over all things forever. Hope that is in us where we are able to remind ourselves of the gospel. And that is why we have gathered here today, isn't it? To remind one another of the gospel. To remind one another of the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope that is in us is not wishful thinking, that we hope one day everything will finally work out. It is sure and certain, as this platform is that I am standing on right now, that Jesus Christ provides redemption to his people. A redemption that every believer in this room needs to be reminded of. Because suffering in our life causes us to forget the value of the redemption that Christ has secured for us. Friends, Jesus Christ died so that we might have hope. He died for you on the cross. He suffered in your place so that you wouldn't have to. He rose from the dead for your justification. He has ascended into heaven and has sent you the promised Holy Spirit so that you would not go throughout this life hopeless, but filled with hope, looking forward to a new age and a new world and resurrection life. An unbeliever, if you're here today and you find yourself hopeless, suffering in this life, Perhaps it's because you're believing the wrong message. But you're in a great place today. Because we're all about one message. We have one sermon that we preach every week. The gospel. And we remind ourselves of our desperate need for it. That you're a sinner. That your sin has separated you from God. And that because of your sin, you should go to hell forever. Not just a bad place, but the worst place for all of eternity. And that the only way for you to be redeemed from that hell... Is by trusting in the Christ that we're proclaiming to you now. Trusting in his mercy. Trusting in the forgiveness of sins that he alone provides. Believing in him by faith. Turning away from that sin. And walking in new life patterns. We would invite you, unbeliever, to believe in Jesus today. It is a simple message. If you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not just the unrighteousness up to this moment and then you have to figure it out for yourself. But all of the unrighteousness of your life, the unrighteousness of the past, the unrighteousness of today, the unrighteousness of the future. Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He will save you from all of that sin. And Jesus Christ makes you an astounding promise. That sinner though you are, He will make sure you safely get home to glory. He will carry you along. He will ultimately deliver you. And you will on that day rejoice and be glad. Unbeliever, come to Christ today. Trust in Christ today. There are people who are here today who just like you sat in seats just like this. And on a day just like this heard the gospel and were born again. And that can be true for you today. Come to him. He will never cast you out. I'd love to talk to you. I'm at the tunnel after the service. All of the members of this church would love to talk to you about the gospel, but perhaps you're afraid to talk to people about the gospel. Oddly enough, we actually have a little demonstration of the gospel in video format on our website. You can go on there and it says, what is the gospel? You can watch that video and then I'd encourage you to connect with somebody here at this church or perhaps pick up one of the books at what we call the Connection Center titled, What is the Gospel? And read that and learn more about Jesus Christ. We would love to speak to you about a relationship with him. Come and find one of us. The gospel for Peter is not wishful thinking. He speaks of hope. Hope that is before us. Our inner life 
gives way to outward actions. So Peter does not separate the inner from the outer, the private from the public. In fact, he says what comes out in public is a manifestation of what is really there in private. What happens outwardly in our lives is a manifestation of what is actually there inwardly in our lives, just like Jesus. When he calls us to defend the hope that is in us, notice how he tells us to do it. He doesn't just say by overwhelming people with information. He says, verse 15, with gentleness and respect. Peter was aware that in a hostile world, there would be the temptation upon the church to respond in kind. To respond harshly. To treat other people the way that we've been treated. To respond to people the way that we've been responded to. So Peter calls us to deliver our message in an astonishing way. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if this characterizes your gospel presentation and the way that you live your life. With gentleness and respect. Or, as the word actually says, with gentleness and a fear toward God. Would others describe your defense of the gospel as gentle? Marked by fear toward God? Or would they say, you're a harsh person. And you're more concerned about being right than respectful. You're more concerned about winning an argument than you are winning souls. Gentleness and respect flow out of the realization of how God has treated us. Peter wants these people to see the reason that we respond this way to others is because the Lord has not treated us as our sins deserve. Once again, something this table reminds us of. Jesus Christ did not treat sinners the way that they deserve. Jesus Christ died for sinners. His body was broken for sinners. His blood was shed for sinners. Jesus was merciful toward sinners. Jesus was kind toward stubborn sinners like his disciples who needed to be taught the same lessons over and over and over again. And like the very people who railed against him on the cross. And from the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Which often seems to be the exact opposite of the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat the unbelieving world. Father, don't forgive them. They're all stupid anyways. Peter says, let gentleness and respect characterize the defense of the gospel or just frankly, you're doing it wrong even if what you're saying is right. Peter reminds us here that this gentleness and respect actually gives Christians who defend the faith, verse 16, a clear conscience. He reminds us that we live in the presence of God in all that we do, so we must not resort to revenge or anger or sin when called to defend the hope. But why does he do that? Why should we live in fear and with humility before God and maintain a good conscience? Verse 16, so that when you are slandered, his assumption here is people are not going to like what you say to them. His assumption is they're going to slander you. He's preparing them and us to suffer when those who revile your good behavior. This is what they think of your good behavior, your good behavior in Christ, that they might be put to shame. Peter tells us the reason that we respond this way is the mission of God. Peter tells us that the social persecution that we experience for our hope and our belief and our faith Verse 16, because of our good behavior, advance the mission of the church that the good deeds of believers are intended for mission. And Peter tells us that bold words alone will not honor the Lord if they are not supported by a consistent life. 
We are to live righteously so that by our good conduct, the unbelieving world will be ashamed. Ashamed by the way that they're treating good people. In this letter, Peter tells us that some non-Christians may be won by our conduct. That's what he said in chapter 2. But he also tells us, verse 16, that part of the suffering and mission of God is that some non-Christians will refuse to acknowledge the goodness in the lives of Christians. And that the day is coming when they will be put to shame, when they are forced to recognize the righteousness of what they believed, when they are vindicated on the last day. Suffering in the blessing of God, suffering in the mission of God. Notice third, suffering in the will of God. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 17, Peter is saying that it is better for Christians to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter knew human nature, and he realized that one of the ways that Christians would be prone to explain all the suffering in their life is a result of their own righteousness. But he helps us see here, some people suffer for the evil in their life, some people suffer for the good in their life. What is it in our life? You have to answer that question yourself. When some of, it, some of them might have deserved it, Peter helps them see that some of them do not deserve it. So he refers to the sufferings and difficulties that Christians experience in the present age. And he says that the opposition that believers doing righteousness face must be for their good conduct, not as a result of their sin. And their suffering is, verse 17, God's will. Now, that's hard to read. Suffering. Your suffering, my suffering, our suffering as a church, our suffering as individuals, is not outside of God's control and falls under the auspice of God's will. And the suffering of each believer represents God's will for their life. It's not a denial of the work of Satan or his intrigues against the church, it's not an exemption from human responsibility. Nevertheless, Peter tells us that no one, absolutely no one, suffers outside of God's will. That no harm can come to the believer apart from God's control and permission. That is meant to comfort the believer, not discourage the believer. That's meant to help us because whatever it is that you're facing, words, acts, oppression, coercion, manipulation, abuse, disenfranchisement from others, social ostracization, is not outside of the will of God, but somehow in the mystery of God, falls under God's will for your life. And that Satan can only inflict damage, but as Luther reminded us, the devil is God's devil, and he can do nothing to harm you apart from God's will. Peter doesn't answer all of the philosophical questions that we have about that. And if we're honest, that's disturbing to us. In fact, that's what makes it difficult for us. He just states it. God's will, your suffering, and your suffering is not outside the auspice of God's will, and you are to take courage in that. You're not suffering alone, and you're not suffering apart from the will of God, and your suffering is not punitive, it's not against you. Somehow it's in the mystery of God for your good. God's intentions and motives allow the suffering for remarkable purposes in our lives. The point here is not that God wills suffering, though specifically, is that he wills also the doing of right. He wants us to see that we are to do right and be good Christian people as we give a defense 
for the hope that is in us. I want to apply the text in a few different ways before we approach the table. And they're all going to come under one heading. First, do not, first and really kind of only, do not be surprised by suffering. I want to read the first part of chapter 4, verse 1 again. Since, uh, no, sorry, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. There it is. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, if we're honest, we are surprised. We're surprised because suffering is not what we expect for the Christian life. We're not expecting it, but the Scripture constantly speaks to the sufferer. If you're suffering in any way, let me encourage you today from the words of the psalmist who expected people to suffer. He says this in Psalm 42, verse 11. And why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If you're suffering, the scripture has space for you. And the psalmist regularly speaks time and again to those who suffer. But perhaps you're suffering more acutely than just the broad bucket of suffering. If you're suffering with anxiety, the Lord Jesus speaks to you. He says this to the anxious person. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. For the Gentiles also seek after all the things that you're anxious about. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. When your mind is scattered and you're overwhelmed by anxiety, Jesus simplifies all of life for you. And He says, seek the kingdom, seek righteousness, even when you don't have all of the answers. Perhaps you find yourself here today and you're somebody who is depressed. Once again, the Scripture speaks to you as we wrestle with depression in our lives. The Scripture reminds us in Psalm chapter 9, verse 9, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and the depressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Perhaps none of the Scriptures do much for you. I want to read you a little excerpt from Mary, Margaret Clarkson. She wrote an old book that would probably be difficult for you to find in print called Grace Grows Best in Winter. The reason I have this book is somebody who suffered greatly gave it to me. This book was not only meaningful to them, but it was meaningful to Joni Erickson Tata, who at the beginning of the suffering in her life after she became a paraplegic, found this book in God's mercy and read it and was encouraged by it. And at the end of the book, as Margaret is speaking of how God makes us fit partakers of the glory that is before us, she writes this poem. Amidst the darkness, storm and sorrow, one bright gleam I see. Well, I know the blessed morrow, Christ will come for me. Midst the light of peace and glory of his father's home, Christ for me is watching, waiting, waiting till I come home. Long the blessed guide has led me by the desert road. Now I see the golden towers, city of my God. There amidst the love and glory, he is waiting yet. On his hands a name is graven, he can never forget. 
There amidst the songs of heaven, sweeter to his ear, is the football through the desert, ever drawing near. There made ready are the mansions, radiant still and fair, but the bride the Father gave him, yet is waiting there. Who is this who comes to meet him on the desert way, as the morning star foretelling God's unclouded day? He it is who came to win me on the cross of shame. In his glory well I know him evermore the same. Oh, the blessed joy of meeting all the desert past. Oh, the wondrous words of greeting he shall speak at last. He and I together entering those fair courts above. He and I together sharing all the Father's love. Where no shade nor stain can enter, nor the gold be dim. In that holiness unsullied, I shall walk with him. Meet companion then for Jesus, from him for him made. Glory of God's grace forever, there in me displayed. He who in his hour of sorrow bore the curse alone. I who through the lonely desert trod where he had gone. He and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share. Mine to be forever with him. His that I am there. Margaret reminds us that our suffering is not something that we should be surprised by. Which is actually, friends, the very same thing that this table reminds us of. That we are not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test us. If we expect persecution to only come in the form of imprisonment and death, we will not know what to think of what Peter is writing to these people of. Slander, derision, malicious speech, disdain. Peter assumes that being hated for one's Christianity is the norm, not the exception, as he writes to these Christian people here. They're not to be surprised by suffering in their life. And he is teaching us that the one who was born in poverty and betrayed by a friend, contemned by his countrymen, beaten by religious leaders, mocked by soldiers, abandoned by his closest confidants, and ultimately murdered by the most powerful empire on earth, knew suffering. As he hung on the cross in shame and agony, Peter reminds us that Jesus endured the justice of God that all of us deserve for our sins. None of this happened to Jesus by chance, just like suffering does not happen to you by chance. The Bible, not only in Peter's letter, but throughout all of Scripture, tells us that it is the will of the Father for those he loves to suffer. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is fairly simple for the scripture and for, for Peter. If even the perfectly faithful Son of God who never sinned suffered, then faithful people will suffer. Now maybe you'll reply, well, that's Jesus. He was supposed to suffer. That was his role. He suffered so that I don't have to. And that's true in one sense. But Jesus suffered the penalty of our sins so that we not suffer that penalty. Not that we never experience suffering. 
He swallowed God's wrath so that we would never experience God's wrath. But when we're talking about physical, earthly suffering, nowhere does God tell us that Jesus took that from us. In fact, Peter tells us to expect that type of suffering. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example, so that you might suffer in his steps. Beloved, you cannot follow Jesus without following in his steps. And this table reminds us of that, surely as it reminds us of the gospel. Suffering in our life isn't a sign that something has gone wrong. It is more likely a sign that we are walking the same road that Jesus walked. A road that led Jesus into Jerusalem during Holy Week. A road that began triumphantly on Palm Sunday, but ultimately led Jesus to the night before his death. And while he was gathered there with his disciples, he would speak to them once again about his sufferings, and he would have a meal with them, his final meal before he died. And at that table, gathered with his friends, some who would deny him, others who would betray him, all of which who would abandon him. Jesus spoke to them of what we now call the Lord's Supper and how it points to what he was about to do for them on the cross, that his body would be broken for them and that his blood would be shed for them, that his suffering would be in their place that his suffering would be for them, that his suffering would lead them safely home to glory, that his suffering would be sufficient for their salvation. Friends, having all of this in mind when we come to the Lord's table, we remind ourselves not only of the sufferings of Christ for ourselves individually, but for our congregation collectively. We remind ourselves that Jesus didn't just save a bunch of individual people so that they might show up here on Sundays. But Jesus saved individuals to make them a part of a family, the family of God, gathering together around this table, reminding ourselves and reminding one another that he died for us, that he was crushed for us, that he loves all of us. And it is our job to love one another as he loved us. And love covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps you're here today and you have qualms with other people here who are members of this church. The most godly thing that you can do is either go reconcile with them in just a few moments or abstain from the Lord's table today and not approach the table. Or perhaps you're here today and you're struggling with sin in your life and you haven't repented of it and you know it. The most godly thing that you can do is abstain from this table and not come forward and profane these mysteries of God. But for everybody else, you're here today, you're fighting your sin, you're trying to put it to death, and albeit imperfectly, this table is a reminder not only that God saves you, but that God saves us and that God in his mercy will come once again as we remind ourselves of the gospel and he will bring us safely to glory. As with the benefit is great. So we have to remind ourselves that in these moments, these mysteries are great. As we examine ourselves, as we come to the Lord's table, repenting of our sins and trusting afresh in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In just a few moments... There are going to be people down front. If you're serving the table now, you can go ahead and come and be ready to help serve the table. And as they come, they're going to be down here, and they're going to be holding out these elements for you. We're going to ask you to break off a piece of the bread, 
to take a cup of the juice, to go back to your seat. We're going to ask you to come down these middle aisles and go out to the external aisles and then go back around to your seat so as to make it easy to walk around. And then wait and we'll all take the meal together. If you have repented of your sins, that is turned away from them and believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been baptized, if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to come to celebrate with us, to proclaim this glorious gospel together with us as we remind ourselves and one another of the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. Would you stand? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this reminder at the beginning of Holy Week that what began in celebration ultimately climaxed in Jesus' death. His death for us. His death for the people that he so loved. His death for the church. Father, we thank you for this reminder and we pray right now as we come to the Lord's table that you would encourage our faint and weary hearts, especially in the midst of our suffering, that you would help us in the midst of our suffering to trust afresh in the goodness of your gospel and what you have done for us. And we pray, Father, that we would take heart and be encouraged. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.